Chapter thirty one of Dead Men's Shoes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Strowett, Turks and Caicos Islands. Dead Men's Shoes by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter thirty one Joel Pilgrim. That evening after Tilbury races is the gayest night there has yet been at the How. There is a dinner party. Matrons and maidens wear their finest dresses, each assuming that one last and newest fashion, which the Princess Maternic or someone of equal importance has made the rage in Paris. Even poor Marion, revived by strong tea and an hour's comfortable slumber, puts on her blue and salmon dinner dress and feels that she is looking lovely. Yet, Although most of the ladies at the How are tolerably satisfied with their own appearance, there is none among them who would venture to deny Sybil Faunthorpe's claim to that apple of discord from whose pips sprang Troja's fall and the slaughter of many heroes. She is paler than usual this evening, but her eyes are bright with a feverish excitement, and there is more brilliancy in her pallor than in other women's carnation. Mr. Trenchard observes that look of unusual excitement and sees that the hand which waves the large white fan trembles a little now and then. He has heard from some friendly gossips how Sir Wilford and Sybil rode on ahead of all the others during the return home, and he draws his own conclusions from Sybil's suppressed agitation and this fact. The baronet has proposed, he tells himself. Sybil is to all intents and purposes mistress of fortune and the how. Mr. Trenchard rejoices in this consummation, as if it took a load off his mind. He smiles sweetly upon his niece, and once, when he is near her for a few minutes before they go to dinner, he ventures to hint at his thoughts. How pretty you were looking, my pet, he whispers, but a little overexcited. You do have something to tell me, haven't you? Nothing out of the common, dear uncle. What? Not about your ride home? Come. You see a little bird has been before you. Little birds are generally more inventive than voracious, uncle. At this point, the bachelor appointed to that honour offers Sybil his arm, and the procession files off to the dining room. The long drawing room, once a chapel, is at its fullest about an hour after dinner. Sybil has just risen from the piano, where she has played Chopin and Schumann to the delight, real or affected, of her auditory. Stephen Trenchard stands with his back to the low marble chimney-piece, surveying the room in which his lovely niece forms so important a feature, flattering himself with the fancy that this room will be hers before long, that she will be its acknowledged mistress, as she is now its queen. He looks round for Sir Wilford, wondering not to see that captive of love exhibiting his fetters more conspicuously, but Sir Wilford is standing on the hearth-rug at the other end of the room, there are two fireplaces in the drawing-room, talking hunting talk with a brace of rubicund sportsmen who look as if their systems were permeated with old port. While Mr. Trenchard is wondering that Sir Wilford should not hold himself thus aloof from the object of his devotion, the butler throws open a distant door and announces, Sir Joel Pilgrim. Everybody looks up at the announcement and at the entrance of the person to whom the name belongs. The name is strange to all ears, save Mr. Trenchard's. The person is a stranger to all eyes, save Mr. Trenchard's and Sybil's. 
Not a welcome announcement by any means, judging by the sudden angry look that darkened Stephen Trenchard's countenance, spreading over it an additional shade of sallowness, deepening the bister beneath his eyes, hardening the lines about his mouth. He crosses the room hurriedly and takes the stranger by the hand. My dear pilgrim, what brings you here? At so late an hour, too. I have to apologise for what must naturally appear an intrusion replies Mr. Pilgrim in a voice which is peculiarly soft and conciliatory. But the commercial man's habitual selfishness is my only excuse, if a vice can be an excuse for a solecism. I wanted to see you to ask your advice upon an affair of considerable moment. I went to Redcastle, found you were staying here, and hired a fly to bring me on. The roads were dark, the horses slow, and the flyman stupid. Thus, I am above an hour later than I need to have been. Though in any case, I must have been late, as I only reached Redcastle at seven o'clock. You might have waited till tomorrow, says Mr. Trenchard, unappeased by this apology. I was too anxious to wait. I hope Sir Wilford Cardinal and his family will pardon my impertinence. He looks towards Sir Wilford, who has come forward at the announcement of a guest. Very happy to see any friend of Mr. Trenchard's, says the good-natured baronet. I'm afraid you have had a cold drive. It's not particularly warm upon your moors for a man born in Calcutta. Have you dined, by the way? I dined, by the way. I stopped in Redcastle just long enough to dine. You mustn't go back tonight, says Sir Wilford hospitably. You can have your chat with your friend Mr. Trenchard in the library, and then come back to us to finish the evening. I'll order a room to be got ready for you. You are really too good, replies Mr. Pilgrim, hesitating, and with a glance at Mr. Trenchard. But you have no valise, interjects Stephen Trenchard. Impossible for you to stay. Come to the library and I'll soon settle this business for you. Mr. Pilgrim smiles a subdued smile, murmurs his grateful acknowledgement of Sir Wilford's kindness, and bows himself out after Stephen Trenchard. There is a general sense of relief among the company when that sleek head and swarthy face are withdrawn from their midst. What a peculiar-looking person! exclaims Mrs. Stormont, who is sitting near Sybil. What an unpleasant-looking person, responds the outspoken Mrs. Radnor. Do you know him, Sybil? inquires Mrs. Stormont. I have seen him once before. He's an Indian friend of my uncle's. He's never stayed at Lancaster Lodge, I think, hazards Mrs. Stormont. No, he's never stayed there. He only called one evening on business. He must live in the neighbourhood, then, I suppose. I should hardly think so. Curiosity has been awakened by this late visitor. There is something out of the common in his appearance, and Mr. Trenchard's vexation at his coming has been tolerably apparent to everyone. Mr. Trenchard and his friend are closeted in the library for about an hour. Then a bell rings, and the stranger is conducted back to his fly, whose departing wheels are heard in the drawing-room half an hour after other guests have gone and just as the house party are bidding one another good night. It is a quarter past twelve. I wonder Mr. Trenchard has not let that poor man stay, says Mrs. Stormont. A nasty drive back to Redcastle at this time of night. Such a horrid road after dark. And those flymen are tipsy half their time. Perhaps Mr. Trenchard wouldn't much care if the man were turned over into a ditch, rejoins Mrs. Radnor. He's the most unpleasant-looking person I ever saw. Did you see how those black eyes of his seem to take us all in? He's just my idea of a thug. Mrs. Stormont, 
has no very clear notion of Thugs, but admits that the stranger's expression has impressed her unfavourably. At breakfast the next morning there is a general surprise when Mr. Trenchard announces his intention of returning to Redcastle in the course of the day. He has had letters from India which demand his attention. He has some property over there which the government talk of buying, and it would be very advantageous for him if the transaction comes off. It is a matter which requires prompt negotiation. I'm extremely sorry to curtail such a pleasant visit, especially on account of these girls, he adds. The Mrs. Cardinal express their deep regret, but do not urge Mr. Trenchard to reconsider his decision. Sir Wilfred expresses his sorrow, but even he does not press his guests to remain, much to the surprise of the lookers-on, who speculate curiously on Mr. Trenchard's motive for going, and Sir Wilfred's reason for taking his sweetheart's departure so easily. "'Don't you see that it's all settled between them?' says Mrs. Radnor to Mrs. Chasuble. "'He has made her an offer and been accepted, and I dare say the old man wants to consult his lawyers about settlements. "'He'll give her a fortune on her marriage, no doubt.' Sybil is very glad to go, though she feels much more comfortable in Sir Wilford's society now that he and she understand each other. Marion is bitterly disappointed at this abrupt termination to her visit, and is inclined to grumble about the money wasted on those lovely dresses, till she reflects that the money was not hers, and it is something to have secured the dresses. There will be some pleasure in disporting herself before Maria Harrison in that brown silk costume. So the sisters go upstairs and pack aided, or in some measure hindered by Miss Cardinal's maid, whose services that young lady politely offers for the occasion. Mrs. Parker is rewarded for her civilities, morning cups of tea and other small attentions, and before luncheon all is ready for departure. Mr. Trenchard has sent a groom to Redcastle to order his carriage to fetch him at three o'clock. Sir Wilford is absent from the luncheon table for the first time since the coming of his guests. Phoebe and Lavinia are unusually cheerful. Indeed, Sybil fancies that there is a general accession of cheerfulness among the feminine portion of the community. The gentlemen, on the other hand, deplore Miss Faunthorpe's departure with a flattering vehemence. They declare that a star is about to vanish from their sky, and a good deal more to the same effect. Even Mr. Chasuble has admired Sybil, and has told people in confidence that she is the image of a Madonna by Guido in the Vatican, a nice way of telling people that he has been in Rome and is an art critic in his way. Fred Stormont sits next to Marion and bewails his loss. We ought to have gone out riding together ever so many more times, he says. I should have made you a first-rate horsewoman, an assertion that savours of rashness when it is remembered that Mr. Stormont has yet succeeded in making himself a capable horseman. At three o'clock, Mr. Trenchard's carriage is at the door. The portmanteaus are in, the servants feed, and all things ready. Just at this last moment, Sir Wilford appears, looking very much like his own gamekeeper, in velveteen coat, cords, and leather gaiters, and with his gun in his hand. I hope you'll all excuse me for forgetting the luncheon bell, he says to the company generally, most of whom have come into the hall to say good-bye to Mr. Trenchard and his nieces. The birds are very wild, and Glennie and I forgot the progress of the enemy. I made quite a rush home to say good-bye to Mr. Trenchard. It will not be long parting, I hope, replies Stephen Trenchard. You must come and dine with us, directly you are free. I shall be charmed. Good-bye, Miss Faunthorpe. Sybil and Sir Wilford shake hands, at least thirty pairs of eyes watching the operation. They shake hands in a formal and orthodox manner, 
and no one can detect so much as a secret pressure, love's masonic grip. He leads her to the carriage, and when she is seated and the coachman has gathered up the reins, he leans over for the last word, and one last pressure of the little hand he had hoped to make his own. Trust me, he says. You have almost broke my heart, but you may trust me. Mr. Trenchard is silent and gloomy throughout the homeward drive. Sybil, although glad to be separated from Sir Wilford, looks forward despondingly to the solitude and monotony of her life at Lancaster Lodge after the gaiety and variety of the last few days. At the Howe she has not had leisure for sad thoughts, no time for self-reproach, regret, and all the illness that attends her selfish course. She has been the centre of an admiring circle, her vanity gratified to the uttermost, and life has seemed one round of pleasure. Marion is loquacious as usual, and rattles on with her criticisms upon the how and its visitors, from Mrs. Radnor's exaggerated aquiline nose, which always blushed after luncheon, as if it was ashamed of belonging to anyone who drank so much sherry, says Marion, to the Miss Vernon's high-heeled boots, in which I know they suffer agonies, adds Marion. Neither Stephen Trenchard nor Sybil responds to these remarks, but the babble runs on intermittingly till they come to the lower end of the town and to Uncle Robert's green garden gate. Jenny, the omnipresent, rushes out at the sound of the carriage wheels, her hair flying in the wind and receives her sister with a volley of goodness graciouses and sure to goodnesses and numerous embraces which are like the gambados of an infant hippopotamus or the friskings of a friendly sea lion. Mr. Trenchard gives a sigh of relief when Marion and her boxes have been deposited, nor is Sybil sorry to dispense with her sister's vivacious society. You will find a visitor at my house, Sybil, says Stephen Trenchard, as they drive towards the bar, a visitor whom I expect you to treat with all consideration, as he is a particular friend of mine. Mr. Pilgrim, uncle, says Sybil, startled. Yes, Mr. Pilgrim, I did not wish him to take advantage of Sir Wilford's hospitality, nor did I want him to go back to London without proper entertainment, so I invited him to spend a week or so at Lancaster Lodge. And that was the reason you left the house so soon. That and other reasons influenced me. There is that property I spoke about at luncheon. To be sure, I forgot that. I hope my leaving so suddenly has not been a disappointment to you, Sybil. Not at all, dear uncle and that I have in no way prevented the triumph which I fully expected you to win. Pray be candid with me, my dear child. Sir Wilford has proposed to you, and you have accepted him. You ought to have hastened to tell me of an event which you know must give me unalloyed pleasure. My dear uncle, I have nothing to tell. I am as far from being Lady Cardinal as ever I was in my life. I am very sorry to hear it. What was Sir Wilford talking about when you rode home from Tilbury together last night? Mr. Stormont told me that you and he rode ahead of the others. We were talking about the commonest subjects in the world, Uncle. Horses, races, Marion's adventure on fixture, and the merits of Juno, the mare I was riding. Humph! I fully made up my mind that he had taken that opportunity of proposing to you. I am sorry you should feel disappointed, Uncle but I really don't understand why you should wish me to marry. It's not very flattering to me. You ought to understand, child. My time is growing short, and I should like to see you established in a brilliant position before I go. My position will be brilliant enough when I am in possession of your wealth, thinks Sybil, 
but she acknowledges her uncle's anxiety for her welfare with a tender murmur expressive of the desire that he should live for ever mr pilgrim comes out to the door to receive mr trenchard and his niece and for the first time in his life sibyl touches his hand it is curiously soft and flaccid and gives her an unpleasant sensation as if she has touched some strange animal some member of the stoat or mole tribe so glad to see you back he says to mr trenchard in the blandest voice i was afraid the attractions of that fine old country house you ought to know that when i say a thing i abide by it answers mr trenchard curtly mr pilgrim my niece miss faunthorpe if you knew how i have been longing for this opportunity miss faunthorpe don't waste time on compliments joel sybil will scarcely have time to change her dress for dinner sybil runs upstairs to her room cheerful with blazing fire and lighted candles a very different chamber to return to from the dark first-floor front of mrs bonny's where one had to grope for lucifer match and candlestick in the winter dusk yet so unreasonable a thing is human nature that on this january evening sybil would gladly exchange these luxurious surroundings of hers for the one pair room in chelsea could the wheel of time make a backward revolution and give her back her husband's confidence and love the stranger's presence has impressed her disagreeably there is something in her uncle's manner to mr pilgrim and in mr pilgrim's manner to her uncle that inspires distrust the evening at lancaster lodge is very quiet and dreary after the life and bustle of the how mr trenchard and his indian friend retire to the study after dinner to talk business and sibyl is left alone with her books and piano she finds comfort in neither and perhaps were alexis to appear before her to-night on the same errand that brought him to redcastle a few weeks ago she would exchange all her chances of wealth to follow his uncertain fortunes end of chapter thirty one read by adrian strowett turks and caicos islands